0: Hey, just because you're going to drive from Reno doesn't mean you have to be late. And I'm totally kidding. Because I'll be living in Carson in a month. We'll see how late I am. Yeah. Yeah. So, have a couple. <clears throat> Your notes are in the back, and then I'll give you some instructions in a minute. But let's pray, and we'll get started. Because the online audience is there, all three of them. So, yeah. Wow. Thank you, Father, for another opportunity just to talk about your word. And so teach us tonight and help us to think clearly. And I, I'm, as um, Tina and I were just talking, but thank you for, for um, the ability to think. And um, you give us a mind to think thoughts for you and, and to think about your word. So help us to do that tonight, Father, in Christ's name. Amen. Actually, that was you, Kathy, not Tina, that we talked about that. Thinking. Yeah. So I'm going to ask a question to get the night started, and, and I'll repeat your answer for the people online. But I want you to tell me what is the best translation. Do You don't got any explanation, just tell me the best translation. ESV. ESV. Second. Second. Oh, second the motion, okay, Yes. ESV. Is this a cult or something? Do we have other translations in here? that has ESV, whatever one, I'm reading. Whatever one you're reading, okay? Uh-huh. King, James. King James, NIV, 84 or 2011, 84. Okay. The Amplified Bible. So that's it. Some of you are um, are being agnostic tonight about this question, it sounds like. Well, tonight we're going to talk about translations. So you see our thing up here. We're actually going to finish up on the concept of the Greek manuscripts and move into translations. I think I've done enough technical stuff. Let's get into... Tonight's history, actually. It's history. Your handout is only 16 pages. So let me tell you what's... We won't get through this tonight. I have high hopes, and those are going to be dashed. Um, and next week, I'm taking next Monday and Tuesday off to start moving. And, uh-huh, uh-huh. So, <clears throat> no class. I didn't want to be down in Carson and say, Honey, i got to go back to, up to teach a class. Um, so, we'll pick back up in two weeks from tonight. Does that make sense? I'll put an email out to everybody to let them know that. So, you got a week off. So, let's do this. Let's... Um, So my thing here, we've talked about the water entering into the funnel is the revelation of God as he spoke to the prophets and the apostles and inspired them to write down in the originals exactly what he wanted. So we believe 100% that the the autographs, the original documents that the biblical authors wrote were exactly what he wanted written, with no pollution. Then those have, over time, were used, lost, destroyed, whatever, but copies had been made. And we know we have thousands and thousands of copies. In Greek alone, 5,800 or so. In Latin, 1,000, total about 25,000 in all the translations. And we talked about how how much pollution entered in, and yes, there's tons of variants. but the process of textual criticism is getting us right back very, very close to the originals where we can confidently say we, we pretty much know what Paul or Peter or Isaiah wrote, recognizing there are a few areas where we're uncertain but how many areas of your theology that your core faith are affected by variants? Zero. Zero, are, zero, are, zero are canceled out. Maybe some of your favorite passages have some doubts to them. But no core doctrines of the Christian faith are in trouble. <clears throat> then, because we don't speak Greek or Hebrew in this room, or Aramaic, that's to be translated into English for us. And so the question becomes how much pollution enters in from a translation of a copy of the original. That's what we're going to start tonight. We're going to finish up on the Greek New Testament and talk about translations. So this is, um, th- this is a lot of history. And these notes, I don't want to just read them to you because that's boring. But I may do more of that than I normally do. Um, it's tonight and, and the next time we meet. Let's review. So we, we just kind of reviewed the big picture of that, that graph. But if you remember the manuscripts, we have, like I said, 5,800 plus manuscripts that range from the second century to the 16th century. They come from three geographical areas, Alexandria, the Byzantine Empire, and the Western Europe. And those different geographical areas had different variants in them. And so, so that's, that's one way we would ask, how do we know what's certain? One of the ways is a variant or a, a variant that happens to have multiple geographical representations, probably more genuine than one that's just one geographical representation. So we talked about that last week. Um, then the manuscript situation in the Middle Ages, we're going to talk about that for a minute because of we're moving into the New Testament Greek text as it was published by Erasmus. So... We talked about the fact that the Muslim world took over North Africa and Eastern Mediterranean through Turkey. So by the seventh eighth century, um, not many manuscripts are being copied because Christians have been diminished greatly. The Western world, Rome in the West primarily spoke Latin. That's why we have so many Latin manuscripts. So not a lot of Greek manuscripts. Once, once Latin became the overwhelming dominant language of the West, during the first couple of centuries, Greek and Latin were the same. Latin's always been the official language, but most people in the West spoke Greek to probably the fourth century, third, fourth century. Augustine didn't speak Greek. He got greatly frustrated trying to learn Greek. So he's a, he's a fourth, fifth century father. So Latin had taken over by then, so no more Greek manuscripts being made there. But the Byzantine Empire still today narrowed down to Greece. But the Byzantine Empire spoke Greek. And all the majority of our manuscripts are from that area. So, but what happened in that area, Constantinople, which was a town Constantine started in the early 4th century and named it after himself in all humility. He, um, Constantinople fell to the Ottoman Turks in 1453, I think it is. And when that happened, the Christians dispersed to the West, and they took their manuscripts with them. So let's go to the next page, page two. This this happened at the same time as what's called the Renaissance. And does anyone know what the word Renaissance means? It means renewal, it means born again. it's, it's, It's a great word that all of a sudden people come out of the Dark Ages where the authority, is, the authority in the religion is the Catholic Church, and the authority in science is, is, um, is um, Aristotle, and all of a sudden the Renaissance moving into the Enlightenment, all that is challenged. Now the Renaissance has this thing called ad fontes, which means back to the sources. So they're very interested in Latin and Greek writers. And now, all of a sudden, these people are coming out of the East with all these manuscripts. So it's creating an excitement among scholars, both um, Catholic and Protestant, because the Protestant Reformation has now started. And all of a sudden, now, we don't have to depend on Latin Vulgate. We have Greek manuscripts coming from the East. So this started a whole new, um, what's the word? Craze to find out what did God actually say in the Latin. And we'll compare some translations today where we'll look at what a Latin translation said and what the Greek said. So, so now on top of page two, it's the, the origin of the Textus Receptus. How many of you have heard the phrase Textus Receptus? Anybody? Did you guys get some notes? No one? No Textus Receptus? Textus Receptus, and we'll talk about that, is a technical term for the Greek manuscripts behind the King James. All right? And... It, it, well, I'm going to give you a quick rundown because this is all in writing. I want to give you a quick rundown because I want to get into English translations. I, I've spent enough time in, um, talking all the details of textual criticism. So, so Erasmus, who is from Holland, he, he's Dutch, and he's a Catholic by, by devotion. He, he, him and Martin Luther wrote against each other because Martin Luther is seen as the outsider now, having been a priest that's been booted out, but wants to see the church change, and Erasmus is on the inside, wants to see the church change. They're both reformers. One works from the inside, and one got kicked out. And Luther wasn't trying to get kicked out. His big mouth got him kicked out. I think we have a former president that that happened too. But, um, oh, I should have never said that. I am sorry, don't shake your head at me. So, um... um so Erasmus, anyways, is, a, is a, a Renaissance man. This man is brilliant. He's a philosopher. He's a textual um, scholar in Greek and Latin. And he's trying to publish the first Greek text. What he wanted to do was find one manuscript of the whole New Testament and publish that, because the printing press was just invented 50 years before he's doing this. So if he could publish the Greek text, it's money. And, but he can't find one manuscript. He found about six ones, six manuscripts that come from the 12th century and later. So we're talking 1,200 years after the apostles wrote them. He comes up with about six. His, his manuscript on the book of Revelation did not even have the last six verses in it. So he actually translates back from Latin to Greek to create a textual basis so he can put it into his, his textual, his, his um, Greek text. And does anyone know some of the differences between Latin and Greek, what would be the problem there? Greek heavily relies on the definite article, the word the. In English, how many definite articles do we have? Actually, in English, we have one, the. In Greek, there's 24. It depends, Greek really uses the definite article a lot, Latin doesn't have any. So if you're going to translate from Latin to Greek, and because you don't have a Greek manuscript, you want to create one, you don't know if the original had a definite article or not. So anyways, lots of problems. So that, that translation from Latin back to Greek that he made, he created it. And this isn't, this isn't nefarious, this isn't evil. He's just trying to be the first one to publish because he's got a competitor. I told you about him last week, Cardinal Zimenes, who actually had a better text. It's in your notes. Anyways, Erasmus gets his published, and it's published in... 1516. In 1516. And I'm going to read the bottom of page two Bruce Metzger, who wrote a book on the text of the New Testament. It's, It's a long quote, but I'm going to read it to you what he says about it. As Erasmus himself declared later, this edition, the first edition, was precipitated rather than edited. Owing to the haste in production, the volume contains hundreds of typographical errors. In fact, Scrivener, Once declared, it is in that respect the most faulty book I know. Since Erasmus could not find a manuscript which contained the entire Greek New Testament, he utilized several for various parts of the New Testament. For most of the text, he relied on two rather inferior manuscripts from a monastic library at Basile. One of the Gospels and one of Acts and the Epistles, both dating from about the 12th century. Erasmus compared them with two or three others of the same books and entered occasional corrections for the printer in the margins or between the lines of the Greek script. For the book of Revelation, he had but one manuscript dating from the 12th century, which he had borrowed from his friend Ruchelin. Unfortunately, this manuscript lacked the final leaf which had contained the last six verses of the book. For these verses, as well as a few other passages throughout the book, where the Greek text of the Apocalypse and the adjoining Greek commentary with which the manuscript was supplied are so mixed up as to be almost indistinguishable. Erasmus depended upon the Latin Vulgate, translating this text into Greek. As we'd be expected from the procedure, here and there in Erasmus's self-made Greek texts are readings which have never been found in any known Greek manuscript, but which are still pre- perpetuated today in printings of the so-called Textus Receptus of the Greek New Testament, which the King James is based on. So, nonetheless, Erasmus prints it. He prints about five editions where he corrects them finds more manuscripts or two. Multiple other editors came behind him. And so I want you to um, drop down to the third paragraph indentation on page three. It says another editor was Theodore Beza. You with me? So another editor was Theodore Beza. So Theodore Beza is taking Erasmus's text and then improving it little by little and then publishing it because they're all making money. And i make making sound like that's a bad motive. We all go to work to make money, do we not? Yeah. So these guys are just trying to do what they do. The preface to the second edition of, uh, oh, no, no. So uh, Theodore Beza, who was a successor to John Calvin in Geneva. So if you guys are Calvinists, this is, um, when Calvin stepped down or died, Beza took over. Um, in his third edition of the 1588-1599, that the translations of the authorized version heavily relied upon. You guys know the King James? They didn't call it the King James when it was translated. They called it the authorized version. Why? Because King James authorized it. Exactly. So we're going to learn today that the, the kings did not like Bible translations. They pretty much hated them. Many of them did. But finally, King James who decided, we, we need an one, We need one that, that we can say, this is the official Bible of England. So it was called the AV, the Authorized Version, it became popularly known as the King James. So this edition became the text behind the King James. And the idea of the Textus Receptus comes out of this. And And I want you to read this because this will become important in two weeks when we talk about why people got so upset when other Bible translations came out instead of the King James. In the late 1800s, early 1900s, when the American Standard came out, there's some new American Standard people in here, right? Who? So the new American Standard is a revision of the American Standard. In the American Standard's revision of the, of the revised, it's the British Standard from 1880 something, then 1902 or 1903, and then yours is from the 50s. When that came out, they were heretics because they weren't using the Texas Receptus Greek manuscripts. You see, because God inspired those things. And today, you'll, if you ever run into a King James only, they'll tell you the King James is inspired based on the Greek manuscripts behind it. So let me read to you here what Metzger says. Thus, from what was more or less a casual phrase advertising the edition. Because because in in one of those editions, the the Elzevir brothers says this, the reader has the text which is now received by all, in which we give nothing changed or corrupted. So the word textum and receptum became known as the textus receptus. So this is what Mesker says, thus from what was a more or less casual phrase advertising the edition, what modern publishers might call a blurb, there arose the designation Textus Receptus, or commonly, the received standard text. That's what it means in Latin, the received text. Partly because of this catchword, the form of the Greek text incorporated into the editions that Stephanus, Beza, and the Elzevir brothers had published, succeeded in establishing itself as the only true text of the New Testament, and was slavishly reprinted in hundreds of subsequent editions, it lies at the basis of the king james version and of all principal protestant translation in the languages of europe prior to 1881 that's when we have the new british translation so superstitious has been the reverence accorded the textus receptus that in some cases attempts to criticize or amend it have been regarded as akin to sacrilege yet its textual basis is essentially a handful of late and haphazardly collected man- minuscule manuscripts And in dozens of passages, its reading is reported by no known Greek witness. So so this is what's behind the King James. This is not to to throw the King James under the bus, Randy. Um, This is simply to say, in the history of God's providence, God was pleased from 1611 to 1880s to use the King James as the primary translation in English. And untold millions got saved. What's the intent then, like, New American Standard or American Standard? What is their intent by printing what they do? So, um, Christine's asking, what is the intent of the New American Standard by printing what they do? Because we're going to find out that in the 1800s, late 1800s, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of manuscripts are being found that are much earlier than the manuscripts used for King James. And they're saying, oh, we found better manuscripts. So now all of a sudden there's a proliferation of new translations all over Europe and America from these older manuscripts that people today say are better. So, so um, do you guys remember when we talked about this thing that Second Timothy 3, 16 and 17, let's remember that. I know I'm talking fast, so slow down, Tony. I didn't even drink coffee today. Tonight, anyways. Paul is telling Timothy, The holy scriptures that you were raised on, they led you to salvation. And and you know who you learned them from, your mother and your grandmother. And then he says, the Bible in your hands, Timothy, is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for rebuking, for training in righteousness, that you, Timothy, the man of God, will be equipped for every good deed. What was his Bible? The one he was raised on. It was the Greek translation of the Old Testament, the LXX, the Septuagint, which is a Greek translation of Hebrew copies of the original. And I would say to you that the King James is a better translation than that one, as far as representing original manuscripts. So, So God was pleased to call Timothy's Bible inspired. And I say the King James, Under that definition, not inspired in the sense that God inspired the writers of the King James to write every word, but it's God's word used by him to accomplish his purposes. I say today we are more blessed than the people that lived from 1611 to 1880 because we have multiple Bibles that come from better manuscripts. So I'm not knocking the King James, I'm giving you history. So questions on this? Yes, ma'am. No, the King James is based upon about 12 manuscripts. 12 manuscripts. Yeah, not 12 scribes. The King James used, used um, I think, about 50 translators. But we'll learn that in a couple weeks. We won't get that far today. The other questions about this quick survey of... Tell me your first name again. I keep forgetting. Mark. Mark. Yeah, Mark. Mark and Mark over here, so I'll remember you. Mark with the dark hair, Mark with the light hair. So... I haven't said one yet. Oh, okay. Yeah, and I'm not going to. But by the time we get done today, you'll see why. I have my preference. And if you're smart, you'll agree with my preference. <laughs> <laughs> Just messing with you, Mark. You said that the American Standard came out, it helps out saving a lot of people. No, I, the King James. God's always used the, the translations to save people. Okay. Just like Timothy. So, yeah, so American standards, one new American standard, endless translations God uses. There's some I wouldn't use. I think they're they're poor translations, but does it mean God doesn't use them? So, So, was there a hand over here? All right, so let's get to translations of the Bible now. I want to talk about methodology. I asked you which one was the best. And I think if we list it out, we'll look at your graph right here. I want you to see this graph that says word for word and thought for thought on page four. There's one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, 10, 11, 12, 13, 14, 15, 16, 17, 18, 19, 20 different translations on there in English. And there are more, a lot more. These are just the 20 probably highest selling ones. And, and so I want to talk about methodology, translation methodology. And we need to put a lot of thought into what Bibles you read and why you read them. This is the Word of God, and we want we to make sure we, we are, because you're dependent upon translators to bring you the Word of God. And so we have so much knowledge about how this is done today that we are a great advantage to people in any time in history before us to understand how we got our Bible and to pick a good translation. So. You see the graph on the left side, it says formal equivalence. On the right side, it says dynamic or functional equivalence. By the way, I should have put a quotation close after the word functional. Some literature calls it dynamic, some calls it functional. And you'll see in the arrow itself, the formal equivalence is word for word. And the dynamic equivalent is thought for thought. I want you to do this. I want you to take a pencil because um, I chose this graph over another one. And I want you to draw a line. The far right you see the Message and the Living Bible. Do you guys see that? Draw a line that separates the Living Bible from the CE Bible, CEV. So to the right of the line will be both the Living and the Message. Just draw a line straight down. Those are not translations, okay? Those are paraphrases. Here's the difference. A translation is from one language to another. The Bible is written primarily Hebrew, Old Testament, with some Aramaic, and the New Testament's entirely Greek. We bring those into English, that's a translation. But then people, the Living Bible and the Message, the Living Bible's Ken Taylor back in the 50s, 60s, and the Message is Eugene Peterson, both godly, smart people, took the English and paraphrased it to make it very simple. So they're not translations, they're paraphrases. And I always tell people, never use the Living Bible or the Message as your primary Bible. It's not a translation. doesn't mean you shouldn't use it. About 20 years ago, Greek scholars and Hebrew scholars got together, and actually, if you look back for Bibles, you see the NLT. That's the New Living Translation. They took the Living Bible and turned it into a true translation that kept the same simplistic English, but yet is true translation, and good scholars did that. So definitely use that one if you like that Bible. So, formal equivalence. And you'll see down at the bottom of the page, I'm going to describe these, and we're going to come back and talk to these translations. And, and, and Josie, I never got to the one you gave me. I'll have to do that in two weeks. It just, today was crazy. Formal equivalence is this. Tries to achieve a word-for-word translation that still makes sense. If it was literally word-for-word, it would make no sense. Because Greek and Hebrew aren't English. The Lockman Foundation, who is the it's a nonprofit organization that owns the New American Standard. If you see on your chart up there, besides the interlinear, they claim the New American Standard is the most literal translation you can get today. Here's what the Lachman Foundation says in that paragraph at the bottom of page four. The editorial board had a twofold purpose in making this translation, to adhere as closely as possible to the original languages of the Holy Scripture and to make the translation in a fluent and readable style according to current English usage. The attempt has been made to render the grammar and terminology in contemporary English. When it was felt that the word-for-word literalness was unacceptable to the modern reader, a change was made in the direction of a more current English idiom." They stuck to word-for-word as much as they possibly could. Now again, I only had one hand go up for New American Standard. Any New American Standards? Raise your hand. Don't be be embarrassed. Okay, That, that was kind of sheepish there. Just be bold. All right, and you. So, so this is the Bible. Did I tell you the story why I read this? I I forget what I say to people. It's just it's it kills me. I got saved on a Friday night, Saturday morning, four in the morning, my friend's living room. You know, I, I remember them talking to me for hours and hours, and it just hit me. It smacked me across the face. Jesus is who He says He is, and I need to repent. We're sitting on the floor of the living room and I just stood up and said, how do I get saved? They made me read these Bible passages. I have no clue what they had me read. Say a prayer after them. I don't remember the prayer. All I know is at that moment, I turned from an unbeliever to a follower of Jesus. I've never turned back. And as we were leaving the house at four in the morning, going home, the man who led me to the Lord, his name is Danny, named and Danny Sosa. And Danny said, Tony, tomorrow I want you to go buy a Bible and I want you to talk to your father. I thought, why does he want me to talk to my father? My father was agnostic. Um, what he meant was pray. But I thought he meant talk to my father, <laughs> not pray to my father. So, so my, my first lesson in Christian jargon. Um, so there was a bookstore on Audi Boulevard in Sparks called Maranatha Christian Bookstore. And I went over there, I walked in and said, I need a Bible. And I go, which one? And I said, there's choices. (laughs) And this is 1979, a lot less choices then than now. I said, I just need a Bible. So she pulled off a Ryrie study Bible, New American Standard, and handed it to me. And that's the Bible I read until I fell apart. And New American Standard is in my head. And it's the Bible I've used as my daily reading Bible and my teaching Bible until two and a half years ago. When I came here, I preached at the New American Standard, and I found out none of you had it. You all had ESVs or NIVs. The pulpit Bibles we were handing out were NIVs, and I preferred the ESV, so I changed to the ESV because that's what most people in the church were reading, or at least a percentage of you. But I've read the New American Standard from the beginning. So how did you pick the Bible you read? What caused you to pick the version you read? It was on the shelf at Barnes & Noble, hmm I, I haven't, someone just sent me a message Bible, so it's ironic for my birthday. Right. uh-huh. But then someone gave me this when I was teaching, the New American Standard. Right. So it was my father's. King James. Bible. So this is yeah, the Mark Arthur Study Bible. Okay, so yeah. New American yeah. Standard, yeah. I have Yeah, I have someone handed you though, okay. Others of you. Why'd you pick yours, Frank? Well, I used to read the King James first. Mm-hmm. Oh, interesting. So you're a convert of mine? (laughs) So for for the people on on the video, Frank used the King James until a couple years ago when I switched to ESV, he switched to ESV because it was more understandable. But for 30, 40 years, you read King James. Yeah, okay. Couple more. Why NIV, Clint? Yeah, it's, it is the best-selling Bible. Actually, the King James is still the most number one distributed Bible because it's given away for free. But the NIV is the number one-selling Bible. So, so when you look at this list up here, oh, let's let's go to dynamic equivalent now. We'll read about the NIV. So, dynamic equivalent, the op, the right side of the spectrum. Remember, this is a spectrum, not a black or white either or. This is a spectrum. A dynamic equivalent, or functional equivalent, on the other hand, strives for a thought-for-thought thought translation. These translations are concerned with getting the meaning of the text across, even if it takes twice the words that the original language used. The NIV's goal is to have a translation that is understandable to all the English-speaking world. And we're going to learn today that the NIV actually has three translations out to cover the whole English-speaking world. So. Here's from the translator's introduction in the NIV. The first concern of the translators has been the accuracy of the translation and its fidelity to the thought of the biblical writers. They have weighed the significance of the lexical and grammatical details of the Hebrew, Aramaic, and Greek texts. At the same time, they have striven for more... Striven, is, is that a word? Strove? Either way, these guys are translators, it must be a word. Striven from more than a word-for-word translation because thought patterns and syntax differ from language to language. Faithful communication of the meaning of the writers of the Bible demands frequent modification in sentence structure and constant regard for the contextual meaning of words." So that, that is a dynamic equivalent. We'll come back to this phrase in a minute, all translations interpretation. I want you to look back at the scale now. Okay. So, where's your Bible on the scale? Pardon me? Yours, which is what? What do you read? The Amplified. Amplified. Okay, that's right. Word for word. Mm Do you read your Amplified as a normal daily Bible? Wow. The Amplified Bible will have four or five words. It'll say a word, then it'll in a paragraph or in a parenthesis, we'll put four or five other words that are synonyms of that word. So it expands the text quite a bit, which takes longer to read. But if you're thinking through it, you're saying, oh, this is the nuances of this word. So where's your Bible on here, guys? Where's your guys' Bible? Which is what? NIV. NIV, okay. Is anybody right of the NIV? Who's right of the NIV on this scale? Anybody? No? Interesting. So, you see the one just to the right, of the it says NCV slash ICB? That's the New Century version. They changed the name. ICB means International Children's Bible. And it didn't sell. So they changed it to the CEV and it sold. Some of these are for, that's probably for a fourth, fifth grade vocabulary. So what happens to the Bible when you do that? What happens to the the original message that Paul wrote if I put it into an English to a fourth, fifth grade vocabulary? It gets diluted, potentially, yeah. We'll look at a passage today where we can talk about that, where it talks about Jesus being an advocate. So, So, but if you're trying to reach a fourth or fifth grade level, works. You see on here, Left of the NIV, it says the NJB, then the NAB. Those are Catholic Bibles. And in 1963, we have the Second Vatican Council. Before 1960, the Vatican Council, Second Vatican Council of the early 60s, Catholic Bibles had to be translated from the Latin Vulgate. They could not use Greek and Hebrew. But once the Second Vatican Council came, then they gave permission to translate Bibles out of Greek and Hebrew. So these are two Bibles that come out of that. I don't know much about the New Jerusalem Bible, but I have the New American Bible. It's a very good translation. It's not the New American Standard, it's the New American Bible. What would be the primary difference when it comes to the canon? Yeah, it would have the Apocrypha. What well, we call it the Apocrypha, they would call it deuterocanonical. So it would be in there. So then you can see the different initials underneath that, what they represent. I want to tell you this, though. Now, back to page um, 5. It's important to remember that all translation is interpretation. Okay, Think about that for a minute. All translation is interpretation. If I've got one language that I am have a writing in, or I'm speaking it, and I've got to take it to another language, I have to ask myself, what does this mean in the, in the source language it's called? And how do I communicate that same meaning into the receptor language? Those are the technical terms. And I have to translate this in my mind to put it into the receptor language. Does that make sense? All translation is interpretation. And I would suggest to you, on this scale of word for word to thought for thought, the more you move to the right, the more translation the, the translators have, the more decisions the translators have made for you. And I want, to, I want to show you this. I gave you a handout of Romans chapter 8. Since we're preaching through Romans, I picked this one. Where's mine? I had it on the TV, but you probably can't see it on the TV, so I can put it up there, Daryl, if you want to zoom in on it. So if you see here, to the left is the Greek text. I only put that there because I want you to see the amount of words used as it relates to each translation we move to the right. You'll see that more words are taken in English to communicate the meaning of the Greek because that's the philosophy of a dynamic equivalent. doesn't matter how many words we need to do, we'll use as many words as necessary to communicate the idea of the original. And it's not, a bad th- it's not a bad process, I just want you to know the more choices they're making for you on the meaning of words and phrases. So I want you to see here, it's color-coded, i got to put my glasses on. Can you see the color-coding? Can you see in the Greek text, four times you see the word sarcos or some form of that, sarki, sarka, and that is the word flesh. Can you see that? Is it coded in red? Tell me yours are color-coded. Okay, because sometimes I do push the copy, and I don't pay attention whether it's color. I want you to look to the right now to see how the New American Standard translates them. We'll start in verse 3. For what the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh, God did, sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful, and as an offering for sin, he condemned sin in the? So that the requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. So four times the word flesh occurs. The New American Standard chooses the same English word to communicate the Greek word. It it doesn't always do that, but most part, it's trying to say standard. And it's saying, you, the reader, got to figure out what the word means. Because we're going to see it means two or three different things in this short sentence, this short paragraph. Let's look at the NIV. This is the 1984 NIV. This is Clint's Bible. For what the law, verse 3, what the law was powerless to do in that it was weakened by the sinful nature. So they just interpreted the word flesh to mean the nat part of you which is inherently sinful. God did by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful man. Because the word flesh can refer to a human being too in his entirety. To be a sin offering and so he, can, so, and so he condemned sin in sinful man. In order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled, fully met in us who do not live according to the sinful nature, but according to the spirit. So so twice here you use it to refer to a human being and twice to refer to that human being's propensity towards sin. So they made a choice for you. Did they do right? You know what's funny is the 2011 NIV went back to flesh. This is 84. They went back to flesh. Go ahead. I have a question. As I listen to you, would you agree that your intellect, your upbringing, your educational level, all those things, influence how we look at things? Sure. Well sc say it again because I I, I Well then, how do cults start? I'm sorry. How do cults start? Cults start from thinking they heard from God, and they get way off. So, so here's good, your question, revelation, you've got to define revelation. I say this is the revelation of God. In English, this is the ESV. Um, now have you ever heard of the Neo-Orthodox? In the early 20th century, Bart. Um, 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 Karl Barth, German theologian and some of these guys, they left liberalism and became the new orthodox, new orthodox, but they, they, they said, this isn't the revelation of God. The revelation of God is when you open it and you engage God through it. Now you're receiving revelation. And, 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 and I reject that as revelation. Revelation is here, and the Spirit can certainly guide me to meaning, but it's objective here. It's not subjective, me hearing Him, and I thought, well, I've received revelation. This is what it means. And so I, when I first came back to Reno, and this could be off part of what you're saying, I came back to Reno in 1993, and a friend of me gave me a tape, this is a cassette tape, this is some cassette tape days, you guys, of his pastor. And his pastor was teaching through um, Job. And in Job you have the behemoth, this thing with a massive tail. It's a sea creature, it's a monster. And, and this preacher said, God revealed to me last night what this is. He revealed to me that Behemoth was the demon over Reno, and we needed to do battle with it. And I go, okay, so, so now I'm not denying God can give revelation to people, but he just took a meaning of the Bible and, and completely ignored Job and said, God told me what it meant. That scares me, Dick. So I, I want to keep the word revelation to be, God revealed his word in the 66 books of the revealed Word of God. But I don't want to deny God guides us, leads us, talks to us. I want to keep it at a lower level than Revelation. Now, I'm not, I'm not, Revelation as I just defined it. I'm not sure I'm addressing your question. Well, don't we, don't we interpret the Bible depending on whether we're Christian or Catholics or religious? Sure, and that's that last piping. Yeah, well, I mean, well, there's all the different interpretations. Okay. okay, so, 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 let's, let's back up. And then, then I'm back up, then move on. We're all raised certain things. How many of you changed your faith system as you grew up? Your faith system. So you were raised one thing and changed another. Okay? So, functionally, so you were raised with certain colored glasses. You saw the world with certain, color, certain colored glasses. But something happened that caused you to switch your glasses. So because the way I'm raised, what my parents taught me, my parents taught me secularism. They weren't anti-God, they just didn't care. And so there was no need for God in our home. And um, so I didn't have to overcome an anti-God, but I, we never prayed. Well, we prayed, we said a prayer at dinner every night, It's just kind of a, it meant nothing. I had to say it before I could eat. Um, my mother learned it in a Catholic orphanage. But besides that, we never even talked about God. I changed my glasses that night when I got saved to where I have a different worldview that I've developed. So yeah, we all have different perspectives, but I think you can change a perspective. So with that, we're gonna, we're, gonna, we're gonna talk here. I want you to see here, now look how the NLT does this. Verse three, the law of Moses was unable to save us because of the weakness of our sinful nature. So God did what the law could not do. He sent his own son in a body like the bodies we sinners have and in that body, God declared an end to sin's control over us by giving his son as a sacrifice for us. He did this so that the just requirements of the law would be fully satisfied for us, who no longer follow our sinful nature but instead follow the Spirit. So you can see, verse 3 is way longer. And you see the blue section there? The blue section is an explanation of the blue in the other verses. He condemns sin. But they had put condemned sin to be, he declared an end to the sins control over us by giving his son as a sacrifice for our sins. Is that a translation or is that a paraphrase? See, to me, it goes beyond translation. Yeah, it's it's more of a commentary. And it's not necessarily wrong, but here's my view, guys, and you guys can reject my view. I say on that chart of the arrows, From the NIV to the left is what your primary Bible should be. This is my opinion. Take it or leave it. Because because they've done less interpreting for you. And it puts on you that God gave you a mind. I always say this, God gave you a brain, God gave you a Bible, God gave you the Holy Spirit, and God gave you the people of God. And those four things should guide our Bible reading. And when I come up with an interpretation of a text that absolutely no one else does, and as I share that with the community of God, I think I should say, hmm, I missed it. You know? Even if I claim the Spirit gave it to me, like behemoth is a demon over Reno, I, I think that is misleading to people. Ignore the normal meaning of the Bible, just let God tell you what it means. I think that's dangerous. So that, that's my bias, guys. And mm-hmm. I understand it is a bias. So um, There's other color coding here you can read. But, but we, I want to look at a couple more translations just to show you this. If you know have see in your notes, um, let's make some of the comparisons of various translations that we use. Let's look at 1 John 2, 1 and 2. Okay? It's going to be on your screen, because I don't want to print all this. So can you guys see the font here, in the back, Mr. Young Eyes? Pretty good, you want to make it bigger? How about you guys back there? No, you can't see it? I have this cool little thing that says, make bigger. Okay, you guys should have spoke up a minute ago. so so look at the left. The left is the ESV, the middle is the 1984 NIV, and the right is the message. Okay? So on the left we have we have an ad, if anyone sins, I write to you children that you won't sin. But if you do sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. So what does the word advocate mean? Someone on your side, okay? Defends you. So then look at the NIV. My dear children, I write this to you so that you will not sin. But if anybody does sin, we have one who speaks to the Father in our defense. They took one word, an advocate, and created the whole sentence because they're concerned that the English reader they're trying to reach, the level of understanding, education may not fully understand advocate. Now, if you go back, that's in '84. Go back 2011. They went back to advocate. Now the message, which is not a translation, is a paraphrase. I write this, dear children, to guide you out of sin. But if anyone does sin, we have a priest friend in the presence of the Father, Jesus Christ, righteous Jesus. What? Exactly, exactly. I'm not gonna repeat that because it's on video. But what does priest friend mean? Don't encourage her. <laughs> Come on, Annika, relax. Um, see, so to me, that's not helpful. It doesn't help me anyways. But nonetheless, nonetheless, did you have a hand back here? So, so th- this is what the different translations are doing to try and communicate what was said. Do you, do you, see, how, do you see how the NIV interpreted what advocate meant? Do you see that? Now here's the question. The word advocate is the word parakletos, or comes in English as paraclete. John uses it more than anybody else. And he primarily uses it to refer to the Holy Spirit. And we, we never translate the Holy Spirit, John's paraclete, in John 14, 15, 16, as advocate. We translate it as what? Helper, counselor. Helper, counselor, and what? Comforter, yes. Helper, counselor, and comforter. And when we tend to think counselor, what do you think of? So you think lawyer, because you are one. But when you rest, you think counselor, what do you think of? If someone comes alongside, and, and tells me everything's gonna be okay. That's what I think of counselor. Um, but could it be really referring to advocate? I don't know. So this, is, this is the words. This requires you to engage your brain, do some, some compare translations. Just um, a couple more. This is fun. Let's do an Old Testament one. Okay, you blind people in the back. Oops, that that one one screwed it up. Let me do that. Your favorite passage, Randy's King James, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. First time I heard that, you know what I thought? Why doesn't he want him? That's what it says. (laughs) The Lord is my shepherd, and I don't want him. (laughs) Um, But that's not what it means, obviously, but that's what I the first time I read, that's what I thought. And so when you see how, what's in the middle there? This is the NIV 2011. The Lord is my shepherd, I lack nothing. So the old English word want meant lack. I shall not want for anything, I shall not lack. We don't use the word that way anymore. So the NIV brought it into modern English and made it better. So, so the, 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 to the right is the NLT. The Lord is my shepherd, I have all that I need. So they took what's actually a negative statement, "I shall not want," and made it a positive, "I have everything I need." They, have they changed the meaning? Or is it pretty good? They don't like it, but have they changed the meaning? I think it's saying the same thing. It's just being positive instead of negative. So, so let's go down here now. This one, I, I'm, I'm still working through. Even though, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, that, that's a That's a precious saying. I never knew where that place was or what it meant. But how does the NIV do it? Even though I walk through the darkest valley. So they completely drop the word death out. And they interpret death as a very difficult time in your life. So this is a metaphor. It's not referring to a valley I walk through. It's referring to a hard time in my life. And then the the NLT, even though I walk through the darkest valley, the same thing. So which one, which one do you like? So, so she's traditional here. Tr- first one too? Why? just makes more sense. So cool. So, so you guys have been reading the Bible how long? How many years? 50? You're only 50 years old back there, so yeah. So you guys, which one do you like? Did you? You guys are old in soul. Yeah. Go back to your arrow chart, you guys. Look at your arrow chart. Do you see the to the right, NIRV? You see that in red? NIRV, about two thirds of the way over? Everybody? That is the NIV readers' version. And it is designed, much like the International Children's Bible, to hit an elementary school grade reading level. So so the NIV, the best-selling Bible in the world, but they wanted to put a Bible out that got the children, but wasn't advertised as a children's Bible. Because when you buy a children's Bible, what does a child do? Outgrows it. I'm not carrying a children's Bible to Sunday school anymore. Go back to the left now, the T-N-I-V, right next to the N-I-V is the T-N-I-V. This is today's N-I-V. This one pushed the limits on gender neutrality, and boy did they get the snot beat out of them by the academic world. I mean, unbelievable firestorm. England was okay with it. America was not okay with it, and this is, you know, 20 years ago. Today it's, it's, it's not, not an issue. Um, maybe it should be, but it's not in the translated world. They didn't go that far, but they did so. They did, so let's do this one. They did, um, in the beginning, God, um, let us make man in our image. In the image of God, He made Him. Male and female, He made them. Let us make man in our image. Let us make human beings in our image. And then He made, he took the Him, because English does not have a singular gender neutral, they have to go plural. He made them which is gender neutral. And so, so things like that. They didn't go so far as to say, didn't call Jesus the son of God, but call him the child of God, they didn't do that. But they went far enough to where they were accused of bending to political correctness. But in fact, that wasn't the issue, it really wasn't. They're asking the question, does the, is the generic he still exist in English? So Judy, when you were a child, not trying to point out that you're, you're, you're more than 39, When Judy was a child, um, and many of you in this room, if you saw some writing where it was very clear he referred to people in general, they had to choose a pronoun in the singular to refer to people, and they would choose the male pronoun. Greek does it, and so does Hebrew. Not anymore. There are no more gender um, neutral singular pronouns, so that we, we turn them into plurals, they. And that's the way language is changing. And yes, it's politically driven to some level, But, folks, you can't stop language change. That's why you need new translations, which we'll see in a bit if we have time, what Wycliffe translation looked like. You can't even read it. So, questions so far? I've been flying through here. We're going to do one more. Any questions? Ladies, this one is for you. Men, you can't talk. We'll see if... um, Whenever I say that, you men don't you. obey the rules. Imagine that. So, look to the left. Likewise, husbands, live with your wives. This is 1 Peter 3, this is the ESV. Live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel. Don't be laughing yet, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, and if you, so that your prayers aren't hindered. So the weaker vessel. Look with the The new, the Holman Christian Standard Bible did, okay? Husbands, in the same way, live with your wives with an understanding manner, as uh, understanding of their weaker nature. So they took the word vessel and made it their nature. So ladies, what is the weaker nature? What does that mean? Ladies, I hear men's voices. Pardon me? demeanor, but what is weaker than me? Okay, so let's, let's go to the next one. This is the NRC, the New Revised Standard Version. So in the history of Bibles, there's the Revised Standard Version. came out in the 1950s. When they published the New Revised, they made it much more dynamic equivalent. They sold the rights to the Revised Standard Bible to Crossway. And you know what they did with it? Turned it into the ESV. The ESV is not a fresh translation. It is a revision of the Revised Standard Bible of the 1950s. So, so they say, this is the home Christian. Christians, this is the new Revised Standard, that uh, paying honor to women woman as the weaker sex. So, so, so weaker vessel, weaker nature, weaker sex. What is P- Peter saying? Ladies, what is it saying about you? What are our options? Let's put the options on the table here. Not as strong, so, okay? As a general rule, that's true. You guys know who Gina Carano is? She, oh, she just played in The, um, the Mandalorian? She, she's actually the, um, the daughter of the casino owner in Reno. So, Glenn Carano owns the, 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 the casinos in Reno. Anyways, that woman is bad. I mean, she's unbelievable, but that's not normal. As a general rule, the man is stronger than the woman. Is that what all it's saying? Is, is men are stronger, so be careful, men, live with them with understanding. You know, God's not going to answer your prayers. Meaning, they'll slap them around? Is that what He's saying? So, so, what are other options? If it's not muscles, what is it? They're more emotional. Okay, so. Okay, okay. All right, so when we look at. So for time's sake, I'm just going to stand on that for a minute. Um, we, we used to have a poster at our office in Reno. Large staff, twenty-five people at Grace Church, and it it showed this fl- field of flowers, with a butterfly landing on a flower and a buffalo foot stomping on it, not the butterfly but the flower next to it, and it said, "Men are butterflies, no, men are buffaloes, and women are butterflies." And now, whether you ladies like that or not, here's my understanding. Let's go back to verse, the first one, weaker vessel. The word weaker is an adjective. And it is modifying the word vessel. The word vessel has a couple different meanings. It can refer to sex organs. It can also refer to a piece of pottery. So weaker then is now modifying this word vessel. Do you guys know that all words have a range of meaning? I want to step back. I was supposed to at the beginning. All words have a range of meaning. So please, let's step back with me. I'm going to do an exercise. we got to do it quick. Darrell, what kind of time do I have? Cool, lots of time. I'm going to say a word once you tell me what it means. The word trunk. Okay, elephants, one. Count them for me, count them for me, Nathaniel. Trunk, elephant. Tree. Tree. Car. Suitcase. Chest. Chest. I like a chest, a trunk different than a suitcase, but like I have a trunk at the bottom of my bed, okay? So that's five, physical body, physical body from here to here is my trunk, six, central, what does that mean? Okay, so, so there it's almost used metaphorically, but here's a friend of mine, I did this one time, he's, he's a, a, a telephone install man, he said a trunk line is the area where all the telephone lines come in together, they call it a trunk line, so it's a technical term. I've done this before. We've come up with nine different meanings before for trunk. So if I say, I hit the trunk. Have I eliminated many? So what have I eliminated? I hit the trunk. So, so that eliminated tree? I've eliminated a car? I can hit the trunk of a car. I can, I'm not very bright if I hit an elephant. So, so that, see what I'm telling you. all words have multiple meanings, but context narrows it down. I hit the trunk with an ax and yelled, Timber. Yeah. See, now the context, you don't even think about the range of meaning for the word trunk. The context immediately flooded your mind and excluded all possible meanings except that one, because that's how quick your mind works. So the word vessel, what did Peter's readers think when they saw weaker vessel? Did they think a sex organ? And then what did that mean? Did they think, did you hear that? Good. So, <laughs> so um, I, I hold to what you said, I could be wrong. But my experience, um, I, I could even take the word, since the word weaker, it modifies a vessel. Fragile. Fragile. Yeah. And um, men are buffalized, women are, Men are buffalo, women are butterflies. Men can crush ladies. Husbands can crush their wives. Now, wives, you can crush your husbands too. I've been crushed. But as a general rule, in my office for marriage counseling of 27 years now, very few men come in my office crying for what their wife said to them. I've had many ladies come in crying because of what the husband has hurt them. So that, if that's the interpretation, then these two on the right, I think, are missing it. Because they took the word weaker and made it about them as a person, as opposed to a metaphor for fragile. So that's my opinion. So that's where interpretation came in. The more they tried to smooth out, to make it dynamic, they interpreted it, and I go, I'm not happy with it. I'm not happy with it. In fact, the NIV, the 84 NIV, does this more than 2011 has a penchant for removing metaphors and figures of speeches. And, and because they're fearful that the reader doesn't understand the figure of speech, so they just interpret the figure of speech and bring it into English. All right, with that. Any, verse, any verses you wanna look at real quick? What's that? Revelation. Uh-oh, Revelation. Revelation 17, 5. Okay, give me a second here. Revelation 17:5. Yeah. OK So we're going to talk about prostitutes, are we? <laughs> I have to do this to make it you see. So what is it? Which word do you want to look at so it says making it for Okay? Gotcha. So so what was your first name? Rachel. Rachel was saying, she was asking the question you see up there. look Look at the one in the middle here, which is the Holman Christian Standard, that on her forehead a cryptic name was written, colon. And what's that name? Babylon the Great, the mother of prostitutes. So she's saying, someone told her, that this is interpreted as America. They take the colon out and it's called the Mystery Babylon. And America is the Mystery Babylon. So, what did I tell you about punctuation in Greek manuscripts? There isn't a name. Our editors are choosing to put that there and saying that, that the cryptic name was written. And what was the name that was written? Colon, the name described in And you can see put all capital letters. So our editors have chosen that to communicate clearly. But that's what translators have to do. Where do I put, since English is filled with punctuation, where do I put punctuation to communicate what the author communicated? So it's not necessarily wrong, but is it justifiable? How would we determine if that was a good translation? Look at the rest of the book. Look at the rest of the book, look at multiple translations. If you notice up there, they all do semicolon, 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 or colon, colon, colon. So multiple translations are making the same decision. So then I ask myself, do I have the right to say, no, every one of them are wrong. And, and I, I know Greek, I teach it. I'm very rusty at Hebrew, and I still don't think I have the right to say all translations are wrong and I'm right. I just don't think I can do that. I think mean, I'm foolish to do that. And then the other one. Um, if I it, it's a mystery calm about. Right, so th- this, what, what verse, New King James. Let me pull New King James up. See, yeah. Um. Oh, oh, do you see that? Okay, now you've got me thinking here. I missed your point, I think. I'm talking away and not even talking about what you were saying interrupt me. You see, here she says, mystery comma Babylon, and you're saying that your friend says, this is America, and it's the mystery Babylon. Yeah, this one says mystery comma Babylon. Right, right, which makes it different things. And, and this is interpretation. Here's what I would say for this one. Always be careful when someone's confident the Bible's predicting something about America. And I'll tell you why. We are so arrogant that we think it's all about us in Bible prophecy. I mean, I, I saw some things on Facebook that the world has come to an end now that the election's been stolen. I'm not not, not look at your political opinion. So obviously the Antichrist is coming soon. I go, wow, the rest of the world has been suffering greatly for a millennium, but now that America's suffering, it's the end of the world. That is arrogance. So that's my, I'm arrogant. So I wanna look at another one up here. It says, you brought it up. Where do we bring in words that are a bit offensive? Look at this one. So, harlot, prostitute, and and whore. The word whore shouldn't be in the Bible, or should it? What did John mean? Is John trying to get people to say, whoa, this this woman is an economic system and most likely a country. I believe in the context of John writing it, the first fulfillment, this is Rome. I do believe all prophecy has multiple fulfillments. So what it holds for the future, I don't know. But first it's Rome, and Rome is going down. That's what this is saying. And some say it's Jerusalem, and Jerusalem did go down. So anyways, um, do we use provocative words like that in translations? Do you want your kids reading that? They just did, Daryl, so. <laughs> so, okay, any questions on translations before we look at the... Um... What, which one is that on the left? On the left, that's the New King James. On the right, on the right is the New Revised Standard Version. Yeah. I want to which, which is how I am too. I want to interpret myself too. So here's what I want to do. I want you to take your notes, The back of your notes has a page that, page 14 and 15, if if you would separate them from your notes, I I want you to, um, I made a decision that I regret now, but I want you to separate those so you can look at each version of the English Bible and those notes. Pull them off the staple. Pull them off the staple, 14, 15. Let me see, did I? No, then there's this one, 1415. I want you to look at these two pages separate of the rest of the notes. Yeah, take it off. We can staple it again later. I want to take you on a history of the English Bible, and this is a fascinating history, you guys, because we today, we just looked at 20 versions of the Bible, and then we tend to think, well, King James. King James was the first. You know what, it wasn't. There was probably, we're going to look eight or nine translations before King James. And King James was not necessarily a favorite when it came out. You know the Puritans that came to America? They hated the King James Bible. Why? They hated King James. Yes, why they left the country. So, so um, they used the Geneva Bible. And, and so we'll look at some of these. But Old English translations. The Old English is prior to 1066, all right? So 1066, it's really Germanic. So it's more of a German language that Germany, people had, had crossed the sea to England, the German tongue had had, because when you, when you get geographical people, people here, some of those go over here, and there's no longer contact between them, The language will change, it's just natural. All languages are living and they change. So you'll see here that portion of the Bible was translated in English, but not all of it. This was the Gospels. I want you to see an example right there. Can somebody read that? This is Old English. This is the second paragraph of page 6. No, no, I want you to pull those aside, but go back to your notes. I apologize, you guys. Rip off 14 and 15, keep them next to you, and go back to page 6. I apologize for confusing you.
1: I need a brave person
0: to read that paragraph in Old English. Wow. What, who's gonna do it? Uh, someone, I... I'm gonna, Annika, you wanna do it? So you gotta turn around, stand up and do it loud. Come on. Ooh, we—I oui, like that. Now, there's a German word for you. Okay. Oh no, do the next one because this will give you the hint of the passage. Good. Stop there, Hanukkah. So, what, what, what passage is this? What's that? It's the, Lord's it's the Lord's Prayer. It's the Lord's Prayer. And utterly, utterly nothing like Yes, thank you, Monica. Thank you. Nothing like English today. So old English is is English has changed drastically, as much as any language has changed. In ten sixty six the Norman invasion, Normans were the French comes over to England, and French and English mix, and now we have what's called Middle English. Okay? And that is our first whole Bible translation, Middle English, and that's John Wycliffe. And Wycliffe was an eminent Oxford scholar who was not pleased at all with the Catholic Church's hierarchy and the corruption. He wasn't trying to change the Catholic Church to a different church. He's just a person that says this this is not working, and so he he he. And one of the reasons he believes that is because people don't know their Bibles. The priests don't know their Bibles. And so he wants to bring the Bible into the vernacular, because what Bible are the priests reading? They're reading the Vulgate. That's the official Bible of the Catholic Church. If they don't know their Bible well, and nobody else reads Latin, except the very educated, then the priests aren't teaching the people the Bible. So Wycliffe wants the Bible in English, and he translates it, and he gets in a world of trouble for it. And you can read all this yourself. This is the part where I'm not sure what to read to you, what to, to summarize for you. But Wycliffe, to us, a hero, to the Catholic Church at the time, and to England, he's a bad guy. No, he was not killed. He died, he died natural causes, but his bones were dug up later, burned and ashes put out to sea, or in the Thames River, and they went out to the sea. That's the book you're reading, White as the Waters. That's where that phrase comes from. Um, So look at the second paragraph. The first version, 1380 to 1384 of Wycliffe's Bible was quite literal and actually had little to do with the translation. He had little to do with translation work. The other people did it for him. The second edition adopted a more dynamic translation, but was finished four years after Wycliffe's death. His disciple, John Purvey, was one of the major moving forces behind both editions. Though Wycliffe's edition was a literal translation of the Latin, he didn't do Greek and Hebrew. He did Latin. And by the way, this year, 1380, when was the printing press develop, um, invented? 1450s. So his is handwritten. And, and there's still copies today that people have. So um, Wycliffe, Wycliffe's Bible, I'm quoting here from this website, Whitcliffe's Bible was nevertheless a landmark in the English language. Over 1,000 English words were first recorded in it, most of them Latin-based, often through French, including barbarian, birthday, canopy, childbearing, communication, cradle, crime, dishonor, emperor, envy, godly, graven, humanity, glory, and you can read them all. Um, As well as as well-known phrases like an eye for an eye, woe is me. However, not all of Wickless' neologism. Neologism. What does neologism mean? Yeah, lo- logism is logos, word. Neo means new. So you make a new word. We do it all the time today. You know, it happens all the time. You guys make new words all the time, and we just look at you and roll our eyes. And say, there's new science. What does that mean? You don't know what that means? Come on. I mean, I love what does that mean? You love me. I love you too. But is that why you did it? Oh, you did this. What does this mean? Okay. okay. So, you don't love me. Okay. That's okay. I've, I've been rejected before. So, not all ne- e- neologisms became enshrined in the language. For instance, mandament, decressive, cratch. I think we should bring cratch back. I have no clue what it means, but that's a cool word. <laughs> Cratchity. Yeah. So, so anyways. I want you now to go to your page fifteen or fourteen. And you want to read it? Is that what you said? Yes. This is a little closer, you guys. No? Which one? Wycliffe. 1380. This is English, you guys. Sure. I Gotta read it loud. It's all part of the game. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, that's right. Yeah. Whatever. Good job, Nathaniel. This is is for fun, you guys.
1: Now we get to modern
0: English translations, and now we have a slew of them. So Wycliffe dies in, um, what year did he die? I thought I put it in there. 1388, is that what I put in there? Yes, there is. So that's the second, after his death. He died before 1388. Um, Now we got to jump 120 years, 140 years, before the next English translation. So it's very clear, English translations were suppressed. This was not, if you wanted to keep your neck, you didn't translate the Bible into English. And um, so. Well, well, this this time, this time, with time, the the Western Church is Roman Catholic, all of them. And so there is no, there is no Protestant movement. By the way, you know what the word Protestant means? Protestant. So it's kind of funny we you say we're Protestants, but you know, you're claiming to be a protester, you know, when you, when you say that. They're protesting, uh, Martin Luther was protesting the, the indulgences. But the first Bible is William Tyndale's Bible. But we got a little history here. In 1408, the Archbishop of Canterbury, Thomas Arundel, convened what became known as the Constitutions of Oxford. It stated that any person that was caught with a Wycliffe Bible could be tried for heresy. The seventh of the 13 constitutions, right? So by the way, stop there. Do you think today's emphasis on what you should not say, what you should not read, what you should not own is new? It's not. Humans do this all the time to control people. The seventh of the 13 constitutions read, the translation of the text of the Holy Scriptures out of one tongue into another is a dangerous thing, as blessed Jerome testifies. Who's Jerome? He translated the Vulgate in the fourth century. All right? Because it is not easy to make the sense in all respects the same. As the same blessed Jerome confesses that he made frequent mistakes in this business, although he was inspired. There you go, Dick. So... Um, Therefore, we enact and ordain that no one henceforth do by his own authority translate any text of the Holy Scripture into the English tongue, or any other way, or any other by way of book, pamphlet, or treatise. Nor let any such book, pamphlet, or treatise now lately composed in the time of John Wycliffe aforesaid, or since, or hereafter to be composed, be read in whole or in part, in public or in private, under pain of greater excommunication till that translation has been approved by the diocesan, the bishop of the place, or if occasion shall require by the provincial council. Let him that do contrary be punished in the same manner as a supporter of heresy and error. And how were they punished? Flogged and killed sometimes. So, So this is the constitutions of... Oxford in 1408, 100 years later, when when Tyndale comes on the scene, these are still in place. You still cannot own the Wycliffe Bible or translate the Bible yourself, or you will be excommunicated and potentially um, um, persecuted. So but from Wycliffe to Tyndale, some things happened. The printing press. These are positive things, the printing press, the revival of learning in the Renaissance, the influx of Greek manuscripts to the west after the fall of Constantinople, Constantinople. and the plethora of translations on the continent. So now we have Spanish translations, French translations, Italian translations, German translations, and Luther's being the most influential. Now enter William Tyndale. Okay, So English is behind the curve. Tyndale was, so they can read that. He was deeply influenced by Erasmus. Remember, all these guys are Protestant. I mean, all these guys are, um, um, at this point, when did, the Protest- when did Martin Luther nail the 95 Thesis on the Wittenberg door? So I asked a question, I gotta think right I know. I think 1507 or 1509, someone Google it. 1507 or 1509. Say Martin Luther, 95 Theses. So this is the time where Luther is standing against the Roman Catholic Church practice of indulgences. He was not condemning the Roman Catholic Church. He was not trying to change the church. He was not trying to start a new church. He didn't like indulgences. You see, they were building St. Peter's Basilica. Who's been there? In Rome, St. Peter's Basilica. Have you been inside? What was your first thought when you saw the extravagant gold. 1517, so I was off completely. It, it, it blew me away. Absolutely blew me away the beauty, the grandeur, and the amount of money it took to build that. But well, as they were building it, they ran out of money. So they sent priests out to collect money. And they sent one named Tetzel to Germany, Martin Luther's town in Worms. And he had a little jingle. You guys know what indulgences are? An indulgence is you pay money to the church, and one of your relatives in purgatory gets forgiven, or, or lessens their time, or lessens your time when you go there. So, so the jingle that Tetzel was using uh, when a coin in the coffer rings, a soul from purgatory springs. So, Luther is incensed because they're coming to Germany and taking all these peasants' money, taking advantage of them to get their relatives freed from purgatory when they can't afford this. So Luther is incensed. So he writes up in Latin 95 theses, 95 discussion questions on on thank you. 95 discussion questions on the, the validity of indulgences. This was designed for his fellow faculty at the University of Wittenberg. But someone took it and translated it to German and it started a firestorm, which resulted in his trial for heresy, his denial, his refusal to burn, to, his refusal to deny his writings. He had to go into to hiding and eventually started the Lutheran church. So it's at this point that Tyndale enters in. And so here's what we're gonna do. We have five minutes and way too much to talk about in five minutes. I want you to take these, go read them. It's, um, it's, it's, I wrote it, so it's phenomenal reading. Um, <laughs> but there is a book that I told you about last week. It's called White as the Waters. And it's... It, it, it's Tina's reading it now. Um, she says the vocabulary is a little, a little um, tough. But I, I, I enjoyed it. And there's this one here, anyone can borrow. It's called A Visual History of the English Bible. And this was written by written by a professor at Multnomah, one of my professors. And this, he takes you through all the stuff that's in here with all the history and the intrigue and the mystery and the murder, the mayhem. I mean, it's, th- this is unbelievable what a government will do to stop people from reading the Bible. We look at it go, are you kidding me? We have amazing freedoms here. Not always true in the English-speaking world. So read through it, yes. Mm -hmm. Anyone can borrow that if they want. I lend books all the time and I rarely get them back, except Tina's going to bring my book back. She told me she would. So, so any last questions? Also read through the translations before we get back, when you're reading through it, those translation examples, they get easier each (coughs) one that goes by. No questions? Go ahead. So, so she's asking a question, when Martin Luther nailed the 95 Theses on the Wittenberg door, a professor told her that was one of the greatest divides in history, basically. Yeah. And, and I, I would say it is watershed for sure. I think we have lots of those in history. But that was a major thing when the Roman Catholic Church divided. Yeah, definitely. All right, well, let's um, call it a night then. So. Father, thank you again for your word. And and I just ask tonight, Lord, that you impress upon us the privilege we have. The multiple translations we have to choose from. The the privilege, in fact, most of us probably have three or four or five Bibles on our shelves, Lord. Thank you for that privilege. And and help us to, to take that privilege responsibly and pursue you through your word. Thank you for this opportunity. In Christ's name. So is anybody going to change your translation? You can write your own? Yeah. But well, we can make some money. Yeah.